Good morning, good morning. Today is Sunday, July 18th, and we have, uh, we're starting Ezra 1 through 3. We have Psalm 44, and we'll have a video uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's ask the Lord's uh, blessing as we spend this time together. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you uh, open our eyes and our hearts to your word this morning as we start this new book. Um, some of the minor prophets here, Lord, we just ask that you would uh, give us wisdom and understanding. Uh, Father, fill us with your spirit right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah tells the story of Israel's return to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives and renew the covenant. Despite their best attempts, Israel's leaders are unable to bring about the fulfillment of the prophetic hopes. And so the story ends waiting for God to heal the hearts of his people and send the messianic king. And so let's start the video here. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem and he offers resources and support and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts which they then overcome but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past 
or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites, who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorce their wives, the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. 
Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, Obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of the house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in in the charge of Mithrida, Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shabazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400 
All these did Shishabar bring up when the exiles were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Sheshbazar. Chapter 2. Now these were the people of the providence who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and carried captive into Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Syria, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvay, Rehum, and Banah. The number of men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Pahath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zechai, 760, the sons of Bani, 642, the sons of Bebi, 623, the sons of Asgad, 1222, the sons of Adokam, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2056, the sons of Adin, 454, the sons of Ader, namely Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Bezai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Heshum, 223, the sons of Gibar, 95, the sons of Bethlehem, 125, the men of Netopha, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the sons of Asmaveth, 42, the sons of Kiriath, Aram, uh, Kephiria, and Baroth, 743, the sons of Rama and Giba, Giba 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the sons of Nebo, 52, the sons of Magbish, 156, the sons of the other Elam, 1254, the sons of Harem, 320, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725, the sons of Jericho, 645, the sons of Senera, Sena, 3630, the priests and their sons of Jedah, the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Emer, 1052, the sons of Peshur, 1247, the sons of Harem, 1017, the Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Ked, Kedmiel, the sons of Hadaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hadata, and the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hesh. Heshiva, the sons of Teboath, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Seha, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of 
Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shalamai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gideel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Kazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pesah, the sons of Bezai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Menum, the sons of Nephazim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakapha, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Baluz, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Niza, the sons of Hadapha, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasophirath, the sons of Perdua, the sons of Jeolah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatal, the sons of Porgareth, Hazabam, the sons of Ammi. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, though they could not provide their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobai, the sons of Nekoda, 652, also the sons of priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until they should be a priest to consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made a freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site according to their ability and gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 1,000 priest's garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Chapter 3. When the seventh month, seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. There arose Jeshua, the son of Zo- Zoadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they had offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and they offered daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required, and after that the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. From the first day to the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the 
the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Zodak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, and the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua's, Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Kedmiel and his sons, the son of Judah, together supervised the workmen of the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen their first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of his house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, they so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Okay, let's move into a time of prayer and meditate on Psalm 44. Come to our help is the title, and it's to the choir master. It's a masculine of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. With your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did they own arm, no, nor did their own arm save them. But your right hand and your arm, in the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my King, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob, though you. Through you, we push down our foes. Through you, through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and, my, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broke us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for our sake we are killed all the day long. We are re regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down, bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. O Heavenly Father, we are so blessed that you have redeemed us, Lord. That you have come in the flesh. And have made yourself the sacrifice in our place, Lord. Yet we can't even begin to thank you enough, to praise you enough, Lord, for what you've done, for all that you do for us, and just for who you are, Lord. So often we just get caught up on what you do for us, and you do so much. You've done so much. But Lord, you just deserve praise for who you are, Lord, for just being the creator, God. If you hadn't done anything but created us and entered that relationship with us that we turned away and ran from you, Lord. If you hadn't done anything but that, you were so worthy of praise and honor and glory for just who you are. But you are the creator. We are the creation, Lord. You deserve that praise and glory. And then you've just done so much. You do so much. You endure so much for our sakes, Lord. You love us so much. We're so thankful, Father. Lord, I ask that you just reveal yourself to people this morning, people around world, Lord, a day today is set aside to worship, to praise you, to glorify you, Lord. Just open our eyes and understanding of you and who you are and how great you are and how incredible you are and how blessed we are to have a God like you, a creator like you. Help us, Lord, to just honor you, glorify you, praise you. For who you are, you so deserve it. We deserve death, Lord, for running away from you, from rebelling against you. You don't deserve anything bad, but you endure hardship from us, heartache from us. Lord, reveal yourself to the people this morning. Speak to the those that are speaking to people, Lord. May your word come out of our mouths, Lord. From pulpits and stages and just in times of fellowship, Lord. Personal talks. Just may your word come forth. May we reflect you to those around us. May your love just emanate from us, Lord, through us, as you fill us with your spirit, Lord. Be with those, Lord, that are suffering. I think of Pam just suffering in pain, Lord, with her back and her hip, that whole issue there, Lord. You know what's going on, Father. We just ask that you would just help relieve the pain, that you would, if there's something the, the doctors can do, Lord, uh, that you would provide that, if there's a medication, if there's 
just a, a pain remedy, Lord. We just ask that you would provide that, that you would give the doctors wisdom and just uh, in prescribing that, Lord. We have a Trish, Lord, as well, and we just lift her up to you. And think of Chris and Dan and Al and those that are just suffering with chronic pain, Lord, that you would just help relieve that, help them to endure it, Lord, help them to just give them some times of rest and, and relief of that pain, Lord. Father, just we just ask that you would be honored and glorified today. We thank you for being our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, have a great day, guys.